0: Welcome to this episode of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. This will be a stats-heavy show. We've got Eno Saris from The Athletic, Dr. Phil Kotzbach from Colorado State University. He's going to talk about parallels between predicting weather and predicting baseball. And then we're going to talk to Alex Vigerman about what we saw at the Sabre Analytics Conference. But first, we bring in Eno Saris of The Athletic for his once-a-year appearance. We appreciate him joining us. I wanted to talk to him about analytic trends in MLB and what they're going to be this season. And I want to start with the one that's getting a lot of buzz in, I guess, what we would call our little community. And it deals with pitch design and something called seam-shifted wake and my feeling on this is that to explain it in a podcast, you've got to be able to do it in a sentence. So I'll try. And it's essentially how the ball moves differently on release based on both the grip and the orientation of the seams of the ball in a pitcher's hand. And it might explain how Kyle Henricks has two types of change, but change ups and why Mike Kruko might say he just threw his B fastball. Plus what Trevor Bauer is doing when he talks pitch design. All right. So why is this going to be important this season, you know?
1: I guess because, you know, some teams will be on it and some teams aren't. I think there's actually some evidence that teams are on it already um, and that certain teams have been aware of this. The evidence that I have is basically a guy like Alec Mills. I've been looking at different phenomenons in pitch design, and one thing was uh, spin mirroring, where it's the your fastball and your breaking ball have exactly opposite spins, and it's very hard for the hitter to tell which way the ball is spinning, so they, it's hard to tell those breaking balls apart. Alec Mills has that. Uh, Alec Mills' change-up uh, and sinker d- benefit from seam-shifted wake. And then uh, one of the last things that sounds really old school but is really hard to put a number on uh, is command. And the reason it's so hard to put a number on is if you just look at it through the stats and you try to say, oh, this corner is good and this corner is good, those corners aren't always good. Like, the corner is not always the best place to put a ball. Like, if you're going to go up against Mike Trout and you put it on the inside corner, he can golf it out. So command is a little bit harder. It has to have some sort of uh, idea of intent. Alec Mills has that. And the one thing that Alec Mills does not have is velocity, which is kind of pitching 101. And so it, to me, there's some, and there's evidence in other pitchers that the Cubs have. There's some evidence that they're doing things a little bit differently in Chicago and they're doing it on the cheap.
0: What are the ramifications going to be like, are, are the Cubs going to suddenly allow a lot fewer hard hit balls? Are we going to see certain weird things that show up? in various graphs and such that people like you and Ben Clemens and Mike Petriello and others, uh, write about, how are we going to see this this year?
1: <laughs> One of the things that's so hard about writing in this space is, and like Mike Yastrzemski even said it to me, I was, tra- I was trying to bug him. I was like, Mike, what did you do? What did you do? What did you do? You know, like, what did you change? <laughs> you know, you were miners right. minors for so long. What did you change? And he said, listen, man, I could come up with something. And that's what most of the guys in here do. I could come up with something and tell you something and it wouldn't be true. What's true is I just kept getting better, you know, and I just kept getting better and I got my chance. I think there's something there for a seam shift wake, which is some people have been doing it and some people have been doing it and didn't know they were doing it. you know. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's kind of hard to say, oh, this is a starting point. And this is an ending point when it comes to analyzing that sort of thing. So I don't I don't know. I know that the Dodgers, if you look at their bullpen, it's all turbo sinkers. You know, just 99-mile-an-hour sinkers. Everybody else is looking for four-seamers, and the Dodgers built a whole bullpen out of sinkers.
0: And it's clearly working.
1: Right. I I mean, it doesn't have the greatest strikeout rate, but they suppress homers. And I think a homer at the end of a game is a big deal, right? Right. (laughs) That can really swing the whole game. So, yeah, so I think that the Dodgers have been aware of this. I I think that, uh, to some extent, the Astros and the Cubs are aware of this, and other teams will play some catch-up now. The Tigers have a few players that could, that do benefit. Spencer Turnbull is a big shift weight guy. And this is how I would explain it on myself is that we used to think that basically spin axis and, and spin rate basically describe most movement, right? That just that the way the ball was spinning and how much it spin been described most movement, but we knew we weren't all the way there. And now we have pitches that have the same axis and nearly the same spin rate and move differently and the seams explain that. So Spencer Turnbull's four seam and sinker have very similar spin axis and spin rate, but they go in very different directions. I think that the Tigers need to read up on this because they also have Casey Mize. They have a couple other guys that might be benefiting from this phenomenon.
0: So because of this, is he someone who could make a big jump last year to to this year as kind of the growth of a two-year growth stage for him?
1: I like him. I think he has the command. He has the pitches. A little tweak here or there could go a long way. But again, where's the beginning and end point, right? I mean, he's been throwing that sinker, so he's already been taking advantage of it. You know, I think that it may help a guy that can't develop any wiggle side to side. So Frankie Montas is another CM Shifted Weight guy. He has a very extreme over-the-top delivery, and he could never get a pitch with any wiggle. He discovered the the grip on his own, or I, I don't know, maybe with the A's, that actually created a sinker that had some side-to-side movement. So if you see a guy that does not have much side-to-side movement and uh, could benefit from that, I think that that would be someone that could break out with uh, an introduction of a couple new grips.
0: I like this. We've we brought up Alec Mills, Spencer Turnbull, and Frankie Montas, three guys that you wouldn't typically bring up, I think, over the course of a, a podcast that we do. <laughs> but no, that this is this is good. Is there, before I get to the, the other thing that I figure is a big trend this year, is there something else that you think is a big trend in baseball that we should be watching for this year?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for a couple of Mariners pitching prospects in, and particularly Logan Gilbert, because, you know, that thing I said about command, I think there's a little bit of a choice happening right now in baseball where uh, even uh, forward thinking uh, um, organizations have different philosophies and there's some that are stuff first and uh, we'll figure out the command and uh, other organizations are command first. And let's see if we can get their velocity up and get their pitches moving the way that we want. So some people think you can coach up the stuff and the command is innate. And some people think that the uh, stuff is more innate and you can coach up the command. So I think that the Rays are an organization that take players that have poor command, a Tyler Glass now, Luis Patino, and they just simplified the the playbook basically. And they just say, aim for the heart of the zone. Your stuff is so great. This will work out. And that's one way of doing things. The other way of doing this is what the Mariners are doing, where they acquire somebody like Marco Gonzalez. And they say, hey, try this cutter. Try shaping this pitch like this. And uh, your innate command is going to give you a really high floor. So I'm really interested to see Logan Gilbert is a guy who came in with great command and they coached him up with an extra two or three uh, mile per hour in the gun with their gas camp. Uh, that's now ubiquitous. It's a camp where you go and do weighted balls and do the drive line type stuff. You know, everyone's got a gas camp now. So uh, I'm trying to look beyond it. I think the Indians, in fact, started this. Ruben Niebla and the Indians program. Shane Bieber is is basically the forefront of the get command and coach them up.
0: All right. So the other thing you brought up, a minor leaguer, uh, something happened in the last week that was particularly noteworthy at the minor league level that I think we will all be watching this year kind of from a distance for those of us that don't necessarily get to a lot of minor league games. But all these rule changes that are taking place that are essentially baseball experimentation. You have bigger bases at Triple A, no infielders on the outfield dirt in Double A, and maybe in the second half of the year they change that, so you have to have two guys on the the either side of second base. At High A, they've changed pickoff throw rules. They've added a little pitch clock to Low A ball. They're gonna have some games with an electronic strike zone. There's a lot of stuff going on. What among these should we pay closest attention to?
1: Well, I think the most inevitable is the is, this, is the automatic strike zone. And my evidence for that is that they tried it in the AF, they tried it in Indie ball, then they tried it in the Arizona fall league. And now they're trying it in high A. And I basically think they're just going to advance every year. They're going to advance and you'll see it in double A next year. And then it'll be in the big leagues in, in two or three years. So uh, that's the most inevitable. Do I, I think I like this? I think that other sports I- I across uh, the the pantheon in America have been more aggressive with rule changes. And you've seen major changes to the way football is played with pass interference and other rules. Uh, you've seen major changes in basketball with the way hand checks operate and what guards can do. And so I think that baseball in some in some ways has fallen behind. And I'm willing to entertain any of these ideas. I don't necessarily think banning the shift is the greatest idea because it may lead to just more pull happy kind of uh, strikeout power hitting pulled balls uh, and that's already the the way the trend is going but try it out see what happens the problem with that is it may not happen for two or three years or you may not see the effect right away so uh, i want them to kind of try these things for a couple years and then i want them to try in the big leagues my favorite ones are the pitch clock uh, because that'll reduce some velocity from the pitchers and reduce the strikeout rate, I believe. um, And and it's a, a minimal thing that people won't really notice. I wouldn't mind tinkering with the mound a little bit. I think velocity is at the core of, of any quote-unquote problems in baseball, the strikeout rate being so high. I think it's it's all about velocity.
0: And the shorter pitch clock basically means that the pitcher doesn't have as much time to kind of rev up.
1: Yeah, they can't. You know, that, that's there was a great piece, I think it was by Ben Lindbergh or was it Sochik? I that uh, there's a great piece about how pitchers are taking more time in between pitches. If you ever do like max reps on a, uh, when you're trying to work out, if you take more time in between, you can do a better max. So it's just about like just resting up so you can throw harder.
0: One other trend thing to bring up. Are we going to have a deader baseball this year?
1: That's my, my least favorite part of modern baseball is trying to define what's happening with the baseball this year. <laughs> I'll say this. Baseball, we, we did some reporting, Ken Rosenthal and I, about that the baseball is changing and this time uh, baseball is doing it on purpose and they've tested it. Um, and they're admitting that the BB core, that the the bounciness of the ball is going down. So they did deaden the ball. The problem is they did no studying whatsoever on what it did. this change will do to drag. And drag affects how the ball will fly through the air and drag affects how the ball will fly through the air from the mound to the plate as well, how, how pitches will move. And so we have a bit of a question mark here with um, how the pitches will move and how the ball will fly through the air after it bounces off the bat. So it should be deadened, but if drag is reduced, we might actually see more homers.
0: So we'll have to keep an eye on that for sure. All right, we have Phil Klotzbach coming on to talk predicting with us, uh, and I want to do two predicting things with you. One is Fernando Tatis Jr., and you wrote a month ago about trying to analyze his contract. 14-year deal. And I like the the line at the end of your piece. I felt like you could have summed the entire piece in that one line, or I guess two lines. The risk is not that Tatis is not that good. The risk is only that he won't bring the volume that a 14-year deal requires. When he signed, my first thought was David Wright getting hit in the head by Matt Cain and then injuring himself, trying to slide and injuring his back and essentially damaging the rest of his career. What's to say yeah. that that doesn't happen to a, to a young player like Fernando Tatis? Uh, what were your impressions of that deal?
1: You know, so other people came back and said, well, they have they have uh, insurance on it. But, the, the, you know, there's insurance for like a career ending situation. And yes, the Mets got back some of those years at the end yep. uh, from David Wright. But uh, there's also uh, nicks and cuts. And if you look at the career, the, I think the one name that really stood out for me is if you look at the beginning of, the first 600 plate appearances in the modern era since 1974 uh, the first 600 plate appearances of a career they're all really good and the one name that jumped off the page was bob horner who was really good he and he didn't even play in the minor leagues some people don't remember that he didn't play in the minor leagues he just came and was a, a finished product and won rookie of the year the year he was drafted like that's how awesome bob horner was like people be right. like who like but the reason people say who is he jammed his shoulder on a catch. Uh, he jammed his finger into a base. And there were all these little things. He never, uh, I think, played more than 120 games in a series season. Then there was like some shenanigans with ownership where there was collusion. He had to go to Japan for a year. When he came back, he jammed his shoulder again, and he was done. And um, none of his counting stats looked like you'd expect when you saw Bob Horner just hit the, hit the ground running his rookie year. So... There's, the, there's that sort of nicks and cuts problem, and we've seen a little bit of that with Tatis, where he's hurt his back, and he's hurt his thumb, and he plays pretty hard. And, you know, at one point, Bryce Harper stopped playing so hard so that he could be on the field more often. Um, there could be some something there where Tatis uh, figures out. But, but shortstop is also one of those places where you kind of need to be young, athletic, and play hard because it's a tough position defensively.
0: It's certainly adventurous. There's certainly all sorts of things that could happen to him uh, playing that, uh, particularly on double plays, although certainly the risk reduced with uh, how double plays yeah. are treated these days. All right, last question. I'm going to knock out four teams. You can't pick the Dodgers, or the Padres, the Mets, or the Yankees. Who's winning the World Series this year?
1: There's something about the Blue Jays, man. The I like the, I like the Astros and the Braves, uh, but the Astros have already started to get some um, issues in the, in the starting rotation. They're not that deep there. The Braves, I think, would be the easy pick. They're kind of just outside the four you picked, right? But if in the more in the spirit of your question, a little bit more of a long shot, I like the Blue Jays. The one reason I like them is I think that they're going to score a lot of runs. I think they may have the best offense in baseball this year. I see a little bit of enough out of uh, Vlad Guerrero in terms of lifting the ball better this spring. And he already hits the ball so hard. If he really breaks out, they just added Springer. They have championship depth when it comes to that lineup. You know, when you have somebody sitting as good as Rowdy Tellez is or as good as Randall Grichuk um, on a daily basis, then you can survive if somebody gets hurt. A little bit like w- what the Yankees did with Dylan Mayhew. So uh, that Simeon deal was, I-, I think, a big deal. And then I-, I like their back-end pitching, where they've got Julian Merriweather, Nate Pearson, and Thomas Hatch, all guys who were sitting 96-plus last year who have multiple pitches. And really, they only need one of those guys to break out, I think, to, to join Rio at the front.
0: That's a very bold prediction. It is what I was looking for when I asked Eno Saris to come on the program today. Uh, Eno, thanks for taking the time to join us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: The 2021 SIS Football Rookie Handbook is coming soon. Featuring scouting reports on more than 250 players entering the NFL in 2021, the handbook is a must-read for football fans. The book is written as if you, the reader, are one of the team's decision-makers. We capture every strength and weakness both through scouting and statistical analysis, and we've got the most detailed injury information in the scouting industry. The handbook also features essays on important football topics, and provides an in-depth take from the perspective of every position on the field. New this year, it will be available on Kindle. To order the Football Rookie Handbook, go to www.actosports.com or wherever books are sold. We're joined by Dr. Phil Klotzbach. This will be something different for us. Phil is a meteorologist at Colorado State, and we're in prediction season for baseball, so why not talk to an expert in predicting? Phil's an expert in Atlantic Basin seasonal hurricane forecasts, and I'm wondering if those are harder or easier to predict than who will be the top rookies this year. Phil's a baseball guy, too, so let's learn. Uh, Phil, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Always great to talk hurricanes and, of course, baseball. Phil comes recommended to us by Kasha Patel, our guest in season one, episode 26, the comedian who talked about the sabermetrics of comedy. We wanted to talk about the sabermetrics of something outside of baseball, essentially the analytics of something else. And we start by establishing your credentials both as a meteorologist and a baseball fan. What should we know?
2: Yeah, so I do seasonal hurricane prediction, as you mentioned. So we try to predict before the hurricane season really ramps up how active the hurricane season is likely to be. So there's a lot of very close similarities between seasonal hurricane prediction and baseball prediction. We use a lot of historical data. Like you look at players past performances to try to judge how they're going to behave in the future. We do the similar things with hurricane seasons. We look and say, okay, prior to an active hurricane season, what sets of climate parameters were out there? What did the atmosphere look like? What did the ocean look like? And by looking at a lot of historical seasons, I can tell you a lot about how active you expect the upcoming season to be. Similar to a baseball again, you look and say, okay, how well, how well has this person performed last year, two years ago, three years ago, what kind of injuries are they having? Are they um, you think you're on an upswing, on a downswing? There are a lot of similarities between baseball and hurricanes, especially the way we do it. We use a lot of statistics and historical data when we do our forecasts.
0: And the primary usage for what you do is essentially to tell people you might want to avoid the Atlantic coast. Yeah. So basically, there's a lot
2: of curiosity, kind of like at the start of the hurricane season or start of the baseball season. Everyone goes and says, who's going to win the World Series? And so three years, two years ago, I predicted the San Francisco Giants. So you can take my baseball predictions with a grain of salt. The last year I did predict the Dodgers to win, so that, that worked out better. But Not was, as hard. Not a super hard prediction there. But anyway, yeah, so when it comes to the forecast, there's a lot of curiosity. People want to know how active the season is going to be. Um, and so you can give them some information. These, certainly these forecasts aren't perfect, but you can predict with a reasonable amount of skill how many hurricanes are going to form in the Atlantic Basin. And then the idea is that, in general, more active seasons have more landfalling hurricanes. So if you throw enough darts at a board – eventually you're going to get a bullseye and obviously last year was a great case in point it was a super active hurricane season we had 30 storms and um, we had 12 storms hit the U.S. six of those at hurricane strength Just a very active season both for the Atlantic as well as for the um, for the U.S. especially.
0: Yep and certainly you have to look out if you're living in certain parts of the country Uh, why is hurricane forecasting your specialty?
2: Yeah, I've always just been fascinated by the weather. I mean, I've always been fascinated with baseball as well, but always fascinated by the weather. And I grew up in Massachusetts, so I'm a diehard Red Sox fan. I was, uh, when, we, when I was five years old, Hurricane Gloria made landfall in Connecticut, but it brought pretty significant impacts um, to Massachusetts, where I was living at the time as well. And so I've always been fascinated by the weather, but especially since the mid-'80s or so, really with that hurricane focus.
0: Okay, so let's put this into baseball terms. And you started to kind of do that. And a bunch of us in our company just attended the Sabre Analytics Conference. One topic was batter-pitcher matchups and figuring out the interplay of different variables, essentially what's important and what's not. So what's important and what's not when you're trying to forecast hurricanes?
2: Yeah, and so that actually changes over the course of when you're doing these forecasts too. So we typically put on our first forecast in early April. So that's two months before the hurricane season officially starts. And then the hurricane season starts June 1st, but really we don't get much until early to mid-August. You get about one hurricane before the middle of August. So what we look at in April actually shifts a little bit to what we look at in June. In April, we're looking at conditions kind of all around the world and how those then kind of basically if you change the winds in one part of the world, it then changes the winds in other parts of the world that then change the water temperatures and all these kind of Disparate factors then translate into how warm is the Atlantic Ocean going to be for the peak of the season. Since hurricanes live off of warm ocean water, more of that warm ocean water provides more fuel for hurricanes. So that's one of our primary forecast tools. Another big one um, is whether you're going to have El Nino, which is warmer than normal water in the in the eastern and central tropical Pacific. When you have warm water there, it basically increases upper level winds and tear apart hurricanes in the Atlantic.
0: And what are the, the tools that, that you're using in your job? Yeah, so we use
2: a lot of, again, historical weather data. So okay. those this, this historical weather data, you literally used to be you had to like call people up and get them to mail you data. But now, well, obviously, we have a lot better computational ability. So we have these basically historical data sets um, that basically allow us to look at, say, water temperatures from like the last 50 years. We have historical data sets of winds, we have historical data sets of pressure patterns, and we have a really good historical data sets of hurricanes as well. So basically, it's kind of like my favorite, one of my favorite references for baseball, baseball that, baseballreference.com, kind of that where you can get all your statistics. There's a whole variety of different data sets that we use to kind of look at historical weather data to give us kind of the best
0: way forward to be able to forecast what we might expect in the upcoming season. Weatherreference.com. That, that's, it's, it's, it'll, it'll be huge. Uh, <laughs> it'll be, I think what's interesting, though, is the challenge of taking it in your world and translating it into a world where people can easily understand it, like myself, who knows nothing about weather and who was just introduced to all of the terms that you just said. Um, <laughs> what What's the challenge in that for you?
2: Yeah. So the key is basically trying to turn around various like weather and climate patterns and then trying to turn it into what people actually care about, which is, you know, our storm, is this storm going to hit me where I live? Right. And unfortunately on a seasonal level, that's trying to say, you know, is, you know, Pitcher X going to save game 139? Like we just don't know. I mean, you could be losing 12 to nothing, but what we can say is that in general, again, more active seasons do have more landfall and hurricanes. So it tends to load the dice for the season. Similarly, like when you go into the baseball season, you have certain teams that, you know, have a reasonably good chance of winning. There's other teams where, you know, it's going to be really, really hard. You know, they're going to be really low odds. I mean, you can get the occasional, we'll, we'll give a tip off to your miracle Mets, you know, the 101 odds or like the Red Sox in 67, nobody thought they were going anywhere. <laughs> they didn't quite get as close as the Mets, but still, but in general, again, your, your odds on favorites at the start of the year, typically at least are ones that make the playoffs and your 50 to 101 odds. And so that's kind of what we look at with these hurricane seasons as well is, okay, this season looks like it's really likely to be very active. Therefore, the odds of storms hitting the U.S. do go up. Again, it's never a one-to-one shot. You can have a complete dud of a season, has one nasty hurricane that slams into somewhere. But again, the odds go down. How accurate were you last year? Last year, we were pretty good. So we do our first forecast in April. And so in April, we forecast... So an average season has six hurricanes. In April, we forecast eight, and then we actually got 13. So we were... Above normal, but not nearly as high as we need to go by August, which is just prior to when the season really ramps up. We forecast twelve, and we got thirteen. Which that's I'm very happy with that. If we're forecasting twice as many as normal, and we get a little bit more than that, I'll I'll take that forecast any day.
0: So something like six to thirteen is like okay. Cody Bellinger was good before his MVP season. We predicted he'll be a little better, and then all of a sudden he became an MVP kind of player.
2: Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Just like
0: that. So uh, how accurate are you historically?
2: So on average, I mean, there's, of course, it's kind of one of those things, like, well, how do you want to keep score? But on average, our forecast is off by about, our error bar is about two hurricanes. So if we predict eight hurricanes, on average, there's going to be somewhere between six and 10. So there is a, some uncertainty in the, in the forecast, and hurricanes are weather events, and sometimes you can get a really short-lived hurricane that's there for like six hours, and that counts as a hurricane, but it's <laughs> kind of a blip on the radar, whereas other times you may get, a really conducive environment and all you get is one really, really long-lived hurricane, which is why we look at a lot of like integrated metrics of hurricane activity, which are similar to probably some of the more in-depth like sabermetric metrics that we look at when judging baseball statistics beyond just like wins and losses and batting average.
0: You've uh, alluded to a couple, but what lessons from weather predicting can be carried over to baseball predicting? You know, and it can go
2: both ways. I think a lot of it is... You can learn a lot by looking at, kind of like Yogi Berra said, you can see a lot by looking. By looking at the past, it can tell you a lot about, you know, what you're going to see in the future. And so, you know, I wish my, my mentor passed away in 2016. He was an enormous baseball fan. He would have loved to have been here talking baseball with you. You never have talked at all about hurricanes. It would have been all baseball. <laughs> but, I mean, it's just one of those things like – and kind of even the way these seasonal forecasts got started was, you know, we knew no one knew you could actually predict the hurricane season months in advance, but he was – he had all these stats in his head. So he knew, hey, if you have a hurricane, an active hurricane season, right before that, you typically don't have an El Nino, which is, again, that was warmer water in the Pacific Ocean. So he said, well, let's kind of gives you a statistical relationship. And then it's trying to figure out physics of why that would happen. And so by using a lot of these and looking at a lot of statistics, that's really kind of how these forecasts got started. And again, that's a lot of what we still do today.
0: And how many people are in, I guess, what like we have this baseball nerd community how many people are in your community of weather hurricane geeks there's a
2: lot of her i mean i wouldn't even know how to guess i mean there's thousands of like i guess you call like weather nerds weather geek kind of people we have so our group does as i mentioned we do seasonal prediction we actually have a website where we have 26 different groups that do seasonal hurricane prediction so those are universities government agencies like NOAA, and then basically some of these other private groups like AccuWeather um, that do these seasonal forecasts. So there's a lot of groups even just doing seasonal forecasts as well.
0: Your Twitter following is more than twice ours, so there's clearly a, a, a strong interest there. Uh, you're a Red Sox fan, so give me one realistic Red Sox prediction and one bold Red Sox prediction for 2021.
2: Well, my realistic prediction is the Red Sox... So last year we had more storms in the Atlantic than the Red Sox had wins. This year, <laughs> the Red Sox will have more wins and storms in the Atlantic. I sure hope. Um, <laughs> but, no, seriously, I mean, you know, it's there's a lot of – this This team has a lot of question marks. Um, there's a lot of people. It's like, well, if they would go back to their 2018, I mean, obviously you've got Chris Sale coming off the disabled list. J.D. Martinez had a big time down year if he comes back and actually can – you know, hit like he did a couple of years ago. This team, I think, certainly has the potential to make the playoffs, especially as the playoffs have kind of grown in size. World Series, I'd be really surprised. I, I doubt it. But, you know, it, it's there's a lot of kind of question marks on this year's team. I, I, they're certainly not, you know, it's not. A, I wouldn't say it's a stacked roster. But they definitely, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think they've, they've got a fairly young roster and a lot of people I think that are, you know, at least their pitching rotation looks looks better. Um, again, there's still some health. There's some health, and there's a lot of guys in the bullpen. We'll just see kind of who, who actually pans out. But yeah, I mean, all in all, I, I think better. They're in better shape than they were last year at this time.
0: I think uh, that in terms of the hurricane numbers, again, Bobby Dalback is the interesting guy because he could have the he could have the 2020 hurricane season and hit 40 home runs, or he might not. He might. Hit what would be a more realistic prediction for him so that'll be it. yeah and that's hard too
2: because you don't have that we don't have the track record then really I mean he came out hot last yep. you know and, and so it's always tricky with these September call-ups sometimes they have a great September and then you know they're anemic and other times they just hit the ground running and just keep going
0: so we'll see do you, do you watch sports differently because you can you're thinking scientifically as often as you are yeah I mean to to a point I
2: mean I'm a Red Sox fan. So I mean, it was, it was, it was really funny. So of course, I grew up with the curse of the bambino and the Red Sox always failing miserably when it most mattered. And then 2004 came around and me and my Pedro Martinez Wheaties box watched every single game, every single one. I'm sure that took five years off my life, but it was in, it's interesting since then. It's like. It's just different watching sports. It was just like you just always expected them to lose, or like to just get really close and then just not get over the hump. And then once they actually won it, especially (laughs) the way they did in 04, it's like, and now obviously having won three more World Series even since then, it's it's a little different than it was watching it as I was a kid. But yeah, I think you can watch it a little more analytically. And as since now I no longer live in the Boston area, I get to watch. So, when I work for CSU, currently I live in California. I'm moving back to Colorado, but I spent the last 10, 15 years watching the Rockies and the Giants, who both teams that I enjoy watching and I'll cheer for as a a National League team. But I can be a little less, you know, I can be a little more dispassionate about those teams than the Red Sox. The Red Sox is always more of a personal thing.
0: And one other thing that you do this is something that you see in baseball a lot. I think people like to integrate fun facts into their baseball stats, like first time this has happened in 67 years or any number of combinations those are the ones you see, see made fun of the most you do that for weather too right yeah so you
2: try to always kind of put these storms in perspective because people see these storms and they say you know okay there's a category four in the gulf of mexico winds are 130 140 miles an hour when was the last time we had a hurricane in the gulf of mexico that was this strong and then sometimes will say hurricane this strong in the gulf of mexico during august or something to try to make it sound more dramatic and so try to kind of put these storms in perspective but especially last year So we had 30 storms last year which was the most storms we've ever had in the season and so the atlantic they go through 20 they have 21 names that they go through the m with the letter they have 21 names and they go into the greek alphabet and so we actually made it to our 30th storm of the year was iota and iota was a category 5 storm which is the strongest hurricane can be and the, the IOTA being a Category 5 hurricane in November is probably kind of tantamount to like Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak where it's extremely unlikely that record's ever going to be taken out. So I, I don't think in either of our lifetimes we'll see another Category 5 hurricane named IOTA. You could have gotten some really, really good odds in Vegas had you done that at the start of the season.
0: That's tremendous. That's true, weatherreference.com. All right, and lastly, where can people find you on, on uh, social media? Yeah, so
2: my biggest social media is Twitter, um, and I'm at Phil Klotzbach, so at P-H-I-L, and then my last name, K-L-O-T-Z-B-A-C-H.
0: Awesome. Uh, I will certainly encourage people to check that out. Uh, We thank you for bringing a different perspective to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so we wrap up with a look at the Sabre Analytics Conference, which took place last week, and Alex Vigerman from our R&D group joins me, and let's briefly address what our colleagues presented, because we had two SIS presentations. John Shirley and our boss, Matt Menacherian, talked about predicting injuries. What was your biggest takeaway from that presentation?
3: I think the biggest thing to to take away from it is, is part of it, this is just a hard question. We're trying to predict injuries, and we have a lot of injury data in our database, but We don't have access to the inside of people's elbows. We don't have access to these these kinds of things. And so we do a really good job in predicting, you know, seeing who's more likely to get hurt. You see a lot of guys based on their workloads, based on their style of play, which is a cool data point that we have. Um, And we're we're doing, frankly, a pretty good job considering the fact that we don't have access to this sort of like internal stuff. Um, which is pretty exciting, and we're going to be building this out. You know, We've only had a handful of years of injury data, so we're going to be really fleshing this out over the next couple of years, which is pretty exciting.
0: Speed was the most important input into the tool for both pitchers and for hitters, the tool, the model. Uh, hitters also their body mass index and age, speed for hitters being their speed score, which is a Bill James stat, speed for pitchers obviously being uh, velocity. Andrelton Simmons had the highest injury risk of any position player. Byron Buxton second. So look out, Twins fans. Uh, Kirby Yates of the Blue Jays was the most prominent pitcher on our list of most probable pitchers to uh, suffer an injury in 2021. It was really interesting. Was the, there's a lot that I think can be developed moving further into the future with that. And then Joe Rosales and Rylan Edwards were part of a pitch type theme for the conference, uh, talking about pitch types and pitch subtypes what did you get from their talk
3: yeah they've been actually working on this for a couple of years now this is essentially splitting our sort of typical pitch types into a few different subtypes based on sort of nuances in movement so if we call it a slider but it's a little bit more arm side break versus vertical break will essentially split those into different categories and this actually blends into the conversation that you were having with eno about uh seam shifted wake and all that kind of stuff and that's definitely sort of the next forefront of, of things that people should definitely be looking into before the start of the season of, of if you want to really understand the the really interesting stuff that's happening uh, in terms of pitching analysis but this subtype concept essentially allows us to say oh Kyle Hendricks' changeup has kind of two different movement profiles. It's not that he has sort of one pitch that moves in sort of a, an inconsistent way. There's essentially two distinct categories that it falls into, which is a really interesting way to sort of think about things uh, from a pitching perspective.
0: I like that presentation, and I should mention, too, that these presentations will be available on the Sabre website in a matter of weeks, and the video from these presentations will also be available in the near future as well. Seeing with the predictions theme of this show, I enjoyed Nate Rowan's talk about predicting what would happen after a missed swing. Nate Rowan, a student at Baylor University, he did a presentation uh, essentially looking at how often pitchers double up after getting a swinging strike. Do they go back to the same pitch uh, on the next pitch? And the takeaway was that a pitcher primarily will double up a little more than half the time after he gets a swinging strike compared to maybe about 30% of the time if he doesn't. And two guys that stood out as guys that were excessive, double uppers on certain uh, pitches, Marcus Stroman and Madison Bumgarner, big double uppers, when they get a swing and a miss, they, they double up only about a quarter of the time otherwise. Alex, uh, Rob Maines, friend of SIS, did a presentation talking about the designated hitter and the National League. What did he have to say?
3: He identified this as sort of like a natural experiment where essentially teams did not have, in the National League, did not have an opportunity to make different roster decisions. They were essentially told, hey, there's going to be a DH, figure it out. And so there wasn't an opportunity to sort of select these like aging slugger types, you know, the typical DHs. And so Rob looked at how did that affect how different teams made decisions about how they used the DH. He also sort of Rehashed the notion of there being a DH penalty, that players who split time between being a DH and playing in the field actually hit a little bit worse when they're a designated hitter. He essentially replicated that idea within the National League last season, obviously a small sample, but it was a pretty robust finding, so we're we're pretty inclined to trust it. And just in terms of comparing the DH performance between the National League and American League, The American League DHs were actually quite terrible last year, and so National League DHs actually performed better than American League DHs. Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, despite the fact that obviously the teams didn't really have an opportunity to prepare for that. Basically, it was mostly because the American League DHs didn't do so great, and you also had these teams like the Dodgers and Padres who were deep enough that they were able to essentially use regular players in the DH spot. So there was a little bit of kind of a funky scenario, obviously also a 60 game season, but it was a really interesting opportunity to kind of look at this sort of uh, an experiment essentially in how the DH would work if you didn't have these aspects of roster building around it.
0: A couple of different ways to look at the value of depth, certainly. And lastly, uh, let's talk about Adi Widener uh, did a presentation looking at the, a a topic that was uh, extremely notable in uh, the World Series this past year, uh, looking at the third time through the order effect and essentially what was it and what about the second time through the order and things of that nature? What did he find?
3: Yeah, so he was essentially setting out to break us of the notion that, that the times through the order penalty is, is sort of the key thing here. When we think of times through the order penalty, we think of obviously stamina and, and getting tired, but we also think of this idea that the hitters get more familiar with the pitcher as the game goes on. And so if that's true, then you would expect there to be almost like a jump in how well hitters perform as they get through each step in the lineup. And so his process was essentially to show how if you control for the game situation, the quality of the pitcher, the quality of the hitter, these other aspects, does the hitting performance get better in a, in a sort of discontinuous way where there's a jump between each time through the order? And he's a statistics professor, so he put a lot of error bars around everything. So he wasn't really willing to to make a strong conclusion on, on, on this front. But there was definitely not any evidence that there is this jump where essentially we have reason to believe that the hitters are getting more knowledge each time they get through the order. It's more likely that it really is a stamina problem for the pitchers. And so that does have sort of ramifications for how we want to make decisions about when to pull pitchers, because it's not necessarily the times through the order, it's just sort of general fatigue factor.
0: And it it makes you think uh, even in another dimension, I guess, about the move to take Blake Snell out of the World Series uh, in that final game. All right, I'll close by giving a cap tip to Eduardo Perez, Maggie O'Hara, Josh Ruffin, and Exxon Bahari for their panel on working in analytics departments. It was moderated by Eduardo. It was really good to see diversity represented among the group. They gave examples of their work, the value of visuals. They talked about their mentors. We may try and recruit one of them to come on our podcast later this year. Look for uh, presentations, videos on the Sabre website in the near future, as I said. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. And this wraps up this episode of the SIS Baseball Podcast. We'll be resuming a more regular schedule very soon. Try and get another one in before opening day. For Eno Saris, Phil Klotzbach, and Alex Vigderman, and our producer Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at Mark at SportsInfoSolutions.com or tweet us at SportsInfo underscore SIS.